Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor here at the TLS. Thea, our usual host, is away, so we're delighted to have the literary powerhouse that is Alex Clark, longtime writer for the TLS and friend of the podcast, here with me. Hello, Alex. Hello. I love being a powerhouse. <laughs> I mean, aren't things, you know, that the government calls powerhouses usually a disaster? Oh, Oh gosh, I've just thought of that. No, I didn't mean that. No, it's okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna oh. reclaim the word. I like it. Yeah, yeah. A fully funded, fully supported literary powerhouse, <laughs> not just a manifesto <laughs> promise. <laughs> you are talking to us from, in fact, excitingly, a different country, aren't you? I am. Uh I'm actually uh talking to you from from the Republic of Ireland. Uh and here I am in the southeast, um, sitting on a on a on a wintry day looking out at the hills and mountains of South Kilkenny. So yes, oh, I'm joining you by the magic of um Zoom and the Times Literary Supplements brilliant uh technical wizards a huge tech department yeah exactly it's nice because it feels like we've got one foot you know we're gradually reaching around the globe (laughs) did you not get um did you not get the storm then we had a big storm here over the past weekend uh actually no no the, the the north of the island got it i mean it was very very windy and i must say i live on the top of a hill so when it's windy it is pretty windy and it's sort of tie down your dustbins uh time and we did a, a couple of uh winters ago lose a fairly large section of a tree uh which thankfully missed missed large structures and cars and people obviously uh but it in fact just swept by us and we just had a bit of wind and a lot of rain okay so so um you missed the worst of it speaking of the worst of it i'm going to tell you what's coming up on this week's show no i'm just kidding it's going to be brilliant Coming up on this week's show, what you always wanted to know about the practice of log rolling, but were afraid to ask. And we will definitively reveal how you could become happier, thinner and more productive. No, in fact, we won't, but we will talk about self-help books. 
But first, we're looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses, not because we're blindly optimistic, but because we are talking about roses. We have two pieces on this most symbolic of flowers in the paper this week, one talking about the cultural history, ranging from Christian iconography to the Surrealists to Virginia Woolf to the Reagan administration, all of whom have something to say about roses. The other piece is about Rebecca Solnit's book, Orwell's Roses, though we are warned that it isn't really about Orwell, nor is it really about roses. Happily for us, Margaret Drabble, who brilliantly reviewed it, is here to tell us what it is about. Margaret, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, I know Rebecca Solnit, I think, says it isn't about Orwell or roses, but there is a, I mean, it, it, there is a strong connection, isn't there? What's the story of the roses of the, of the book's title? I think the story, the central story, is that Orwell planted some um, roses that he bought from Woolworths in his um, little allotment garden plot um, before the war and then was very proud of how they developed. And um, she has sort of woven a story out of that and spreading into all sorts of other roses. But the original roses were Orwell's, and her point is that Orwell, although portrayed as being a grumpy ideologue, in fact, loved the natural world, was a good gardener and enjoyed his, his, his garden plot very much. Yes. Yeah, so he was. So it's that there is a slightly it's a different idea to the one that we're used to, isn't it? That the idea that there's a lovely quote about that he takes joy in, in everyday things and in beauty and in the land and in animals and flowers. Yes, he he really did. I mean, he did also shoot quite a lot of animals, but then that was just what English people did. Even of um, people who liked animals did shoot them, and he killed a lot of snakes on Jura. But on the whole, he was in favour of the natural world and and um, enjoyed being outdoors and walking and rambling. Rebecca Solnitz is a tremendous rambler, mm. but so was Orwell. He he enjoyed walking too. And. Um... Tell us about the importance of Woolworths, because you think that that was quite significant that he bought them at Woolworths. Yes, well, because Woolworths was such a demotic kind of Mm. um, space. It was a place where everybody went for cheap things, and it was part of the childhood of anyone of my generation. You could get mixed sweets in a paper bag. I remember the mixed sweets. They were still going going when I was little, yeah. No, it, it was a sort of magic emporium, and I think that um, I think that Orwell was particularly pleased that he'd bought these beautiful flowers and cherished them and looked after them, and they had borne fruit, like in a biblical parable. They had done very well for him, and he liked the feeling that any human um, being with a little tiny plot of land could do exactly the same as him. He wasn't the kind of person who bought his um, flowers or roses from a posh nursery, as some people I know do. Um, He just was happy with his Woolworths. Yes, there is a kind of thing about roses and and class, isn't there? Because you say also that he didn't think they were bourgeois. Weirdly, they can both be seen as, they can be looked down on and sort of seen as, as posh flowers, depending almost on what sort of roses you buy and, as you say, where you get them from. That's absolutely true. I do remember being once um, astounded by a woman friend of mine who asked me, where do you buy your rose shrubs? The answer was, I don't. But she obviously put people into categories of people who use use very superior nurseries 
and people who just bought them at Woolworths as it then was. And, and it was obviously a social grading in her eyes. Yes. And I, I was kind of dumbfounded by this question. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> and there's also the sorts of roses, aren't there? Because you talk about the, I think you mentioned at one point, you know, there's hybrid teas, which were very, very yes. popular at one point. And, but then there was a, there was a sort of, there was a movement against those, the, the kind of aristocratic, um, Sackville West kind of went went back to the old roses because they weren't keen on the hybrid teas. Well, I I do know people who are very keen on the old roses and who send me photos of them. But not being a rose expert myself, I can't tell what sort of little messages they're sending out. I just say, (laughs) what a beautiful flower. But I know that there's a message with it and with its name. I occasionally walk in the uh, rose garden in Regent's Park and I don't really understand the, 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 the differences between the different kinds of rose and what their social significance is. I have to say, I've, I'm just going to fess up here. I, I love the old roses. You do as love well. the old roses. I do. My, and my parents love them. So I've got a couple from them. And yes. they've often got very, very beautiful names. They're often French. Josephine, they have very beautiful names. Yeah. I think that Josephine's, um, Napoleon's Josephine was a great breeder of roses. Yes. And I wonder if a lot of them come from there. I don't know enough about it. They probably do. My, my poet house sitter was very, very keen on, on roses and he loved their names too because he was a poet. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm making you um, um, go off on a tangent there. Sorry, we need to talk well, about I, I George. I just want to say before we, before we leave these roses, there's a rose that I deeply regret ever having planted, which was a rambler. I think oh, it's a yes. mermaid. What a menace! There, they can, they can just, they can just take over the world. The ramblers. They've taken over the world, and I have torn my fingers on them so often. They are so dangerous. What was it called? Did you say? Sorry, I think it's a mermaid. Okay, well, be warned, listeners. Be warned. Don't get a mermaid. Don't put it in your terrace. You'll you... never get your terrace back. Exactly. You can only plant one of those if you have huge grounds and you need to cover them at yeah. speed. I just didn't know. Yeah, it's a. <laughs> it was ignorance on my part. <laughs> Um, so to go to go back to the book, you you call it. You say that, and you said that Orwell was a rambler, and and that Rebecca Solnit is a bit of a rambler. You call it a series of meditations. It's a kind of is it a meandering read? Is that a fair characterization? It's an extremely meandering read. And um, what is good about her her style is that she admits this all the time. She sort of says she's going off in a different direction. Um, and sometimes the directions are quite surprising. But I, I, I think it was, it was a difficulty for her that she had to finish this book under lockdown because she's a natural walker and an outdoor person. Mm. And she was locked down and, and she never got to Jura, which was Orwell's final kind of garden, his garden out of London. And um, and she would have so loved to have gone there, I felt. Um, so some, some of the ramblings never happened, but some of them were only tangentially uh, attached to Orwell and were absolutely fascinating too. I read a, a, a piece by her in which she said she she said graciously that she was very pleased with how the book had been reviewed, but a number of people, um, not you, of course, called it a collection of essays. And she says um, in this piece about it, she says, to me, that's like calling your family a collection of people or a tree a collection of sticks. <laughs> <laughs> she, <laughs> 
<laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that. But I can see it isn't a collection of essays because they are all deeply interconnected. And she's very keen on the idea of the rhizome mm. and the way we are now increasingly discovering that all trees are connected underground in a way that we didn't know about. I mean, we knew that fungus had these huge mycelium um, that stretched for hundreds of miles sometimes, but we didn't realize that trees were so interconnected underground. And her, her collection of meditations, or whatever she would like to call it, is, is always connected, but sometimes rather surprisingly, uh, a little shoot pops up somewhere where it shouldn't. Mm. Um, and I one quite of the, like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. One of the... Um... One of the sort of the ways that she takes is she she looks into bread and roses, doesn't she? Which seems, again, that seems a very Orwellian idea, not in the sort of popular, as you say, grumpy ideologue sense, but in the sense that you, you, people really need both of those things. They 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 need art as well as as food. Uh, yes, I I thought that was that was a very interesting chapter to me because I hadn't known the history of the phrase, and she's very good at etymology, and she digs back through etymologies and false etymologies to see when the phrase was first used, which I don't think she ever quite established. But, but the idea was certainly in Orwell's thinking that people needed, um, they needed art, they needed books, they needed the outdoors, they needed music, even cheap popular music, as well as just bread. Mm. And because it, it, it seemed to start with the, it was with feminists, feminist socialist organisations at the turn of the century. Is that right? Is that where it goes? Yeah, back to? Yes, I think it was. I mean, it was. I can't quite remember because it is such an episodic story. She starts that section uh, with that very famous photograph of roses by a woman who did become a very strong radical feminist revolutionary. I've forgotten her name momentarily. Tina Modotti, was it? That's right, that's absolutely right. And, but, she, but this image of roses, which is very, very famous and has been infinitely reproduced, and I think Madonna bought a version of it. It's a, it's a sort of female icon, but it's also a revolutionary icon linked through her life story, which ended in a, very abruptly. So... so she, what she does with, with bread and roses is take you in many different directions and um, tells you little stories about the different directions it went in, which I found it very enjoyable. Mm. And then um, to use the word again, Orwellian, again, not in its familiar sense, you say the best and most powerful chapter is actually quite Orwellian about the business of rose growing in Colombia. This was to me, the most um, interesting section because um, she, she takes off to Bogota in Colombia to look into commercial rose growing because she had a hunch, which I feel some of us, most of us must have had, that when you buy commercial bouquets, there's a history of exploitation behind it. And she goes to Bogota with somebody who's quite good at making his way into unionised uh, or non-unionised um, groups uh, and, and they explore what is actually happening to the workers. They're suffering from repetitive strain injury. They're not allowed to unionize. They have to wear these slogans saying how happy they are growing these roses. And that to me was, um, it was the backdrop of um, 
those bouquets that we see at, at St Pancras Station every day, you know, where, where they, in fact, in the UK, they come from Africa, but in the US, they come from Bogota. I just found that tracking back to the source really, really interesting. And it also raised this crucial question. When Orwell foresaw um, 1984 and totalitarianism, was he also thinking about commercial exploitation and the kind of algorithm world that we're in now, or was he simply thinking about po political exploitation? And is political exploitation um, as bad as um, exploitation of our commercial instincts? I found that really interesting little questions raised by the rose growing story. Mm. And, and the, I didn't realise that they, they had to wear the slogans. Yes, it was part of the workforce. Right, I see. So well, they who had... would choose to put no. rubbish on your chest? <laughs> That's um, a good point. I, I, I did find that. And also that you're supposed to look all cheerful with your slogan. Um, and, but, but Rebecca Solnit got behind the back of that um, to hear a few real genuine complaints. And I also, if I remember rightly, there was a good-sounding um, charitable um, green um, body connected with um, this rose exploitation mm. place that actually had um, that was a bit of a sort of greenwasher or whitewasher because they hadn't really got to the bottom of what the workforce was actually doing. Uh, that, that, that's what I felt, that there was some kind of fudge going on about the workforce there, which was being treated badly. Well, that's another thing about the, the as you say, the exploitation in the whole sense that maybe he was looking into, but because that's also an exploitation of nature in the sense that we shouldn't have roses all year round, should we? I mean, however repeat yeah. flowering they are, we shouldn't have them in January or February. We're so... Um... We became so accustomed to expecting to have things all the year round. But in fact, roses do bloom amazingly late in the year sometimes. Mm. But now we have learned that, that within sort of the last 10, 20 years to connect this all the year roundness with um, things being flown in and therefore air miles, therefore carbon. And we are making these connections far more than we used to. But it's very interesting that in, in Or Orwell's projection was of a, a world in which um, people had almost nothing. They, they, you know, they fought over a bar of chocolate. Mm. Whereas what has actually happened is a world of excess, and we're being ruined by excess rather than um, um, meanness and... Um, and division within a society, or by warfare. I mean, Orwell thought we were going to, that he projected a future in which the world was perpetually at war, which hasn't happened in quite the way he predicted. But what we have now is, is commercial, commercial exploitation, which has resulted in this huge disparity between the haves and the have-nots, which we know has increased since 2006 exponentially. Mm. And that, that, that his idea of double-think and double-speak is still there. Totally. In, in a very obvious way with the slogans on the front of the workers, but, but not always in the political way that he suggested. No, it, it is more... It, it's, reached a, it's reached a bigger plane, really, a sort of a, um, an everyday plane of... of, of um, of double speak about product, mm. and you which say I, I find really interesting. I'm mean, like I try not to be 
outwitted and try not to be brainwashed by products. But it, it's very, very hard to help it because some, and occasionally, sometimes it works and you get what you really needed um, and didn't know you needed it. But, but <laughs> yes. on the whole, it's selling you things you don't want. Yes, and you say as well, um, just at the, about that the, the, the place in Bogota, the production line, the roses there, a lot of them are not, they're not very nice. They don't smell, <laughs> they don't look good. They've Is that right? Well, certainly she says um, that the, well, they look good in a kind of artificial way. Mm. They look, um, they, they, I mean, I know there's a, there's a difficulty between the scentless rose and the scented rose and the old rose, mm. and that some of the new varieties are scentless. And and a bread and nobody seems to care about them being scentless. But she actually does say some of them are positively ugly, um, and um, I, I, I'm not quite sure what she's summoning up with the word ugly. But it is true that sometimes these commercial bouquets do look um, offensively unreal. Mm. So Orwell would be doubly horrified, wouldn't he, by the possibly by the roses themselves and by the whole system that has produced he, he would the be roses themselves. By, by, by the system, and he, would be, um, he wouldn't think the roses looked real. And he, he really was quite a keen gardener, and I, I like the thought of him digging up his garden and shifting all that soil and making things grow in Jura. It's good. Mm, and proudly telling you that this one was from Woolworths and it was, you know, <laughs> cost two and six or whatever. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, he, he very much wanted to be, um, although he'd been to Eton and was a product of empire, as we know, he really wanted to connect with um, what we might call ordinary people. Um, and when he went to Wigan Pier, I, I think Rebecca Solnit's bit about Wigan Pier and um, the Industrial Revolution is not terribly good um, because it's stuff we all know in this country too well. Mm. Um, but, but Orwell was, was so appalled by, by the spectacle of real working people and the lack of hygiene and the stuff they ate that he found it very hard to reconcile um, his mission to make the world better for everybody with the people who were actually living in this world and didn't necessarily want to live in a better world. And I, I, I feel that, um, that Rebecca Solnit explores that contradiction in him. And to me, the idea that he is enjoying um, flowers from Woolworths means that he has joined the human race. He's part of common everyday pleasures. And, um, and that obviously pleased her and it also pleases me. Yes, well, that that's um, yeah, that's it's very pleasing for all of us. And thank, thank you for helping us, to guiding us round the um, the meandering, the rhizomatic thinking, which is such a nice way of um, of thinking about the whole thing. It is a good meander. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for talking thank to us. Thank you. Still to come on the show, what log rolling really means when it's not used in a literary context. And we'll be talking to the author and academic Catherine Hughes, who has reviewed a deep dive into the world of self-help books. And just a quick heads up, there is some strong language in this section. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we find out how to help ourselves, can we just turn back to last week and the little discussion we had about log rolling when we were talking about books of the year? So, Alex, we were talking through, you know, our um, writer's selections of books of the year and um, saying that we had to be careful to advise them not to do any log rolling, which in in quite a narrow, I realise, literary sense just means you know, recommending their wives' books and their friends' books, which people have routinely done for us throughout throughout the years. And and find ever more kind of subtle ways to do, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And exactly. And then we made a, a a rather pathetic attempt to define what we thought real log rolling was and where it came from. Um, there's also there's a political sense, I realize as well, isn't there, where people do deals with each other. Mm-hmm. But we were we were talking uh in a more or less uninformed way, totally uninformed way about, you know, rolling logs down to the river. And we had a brilliant letter from a very helpful listener in uh, Vancouver, in British Columbia, where they've been having a terrible time, it has to be said, with the weather. I was mentioning storms, but they really had a terrible time. So I hope that's all better. Um, And the listener says, I had a bit of a chuckle when I heard you on the podcast struggling with what it means to log roll. Um, And sent a link to a film on the National Film Board of Canada which um, explains the whole thing. Uh, And the song is The Log Driver's Waltz, and it's actually performed by the wonderful McGarrigal sisters, Kate and Anna. Um, Alex, what did you think of the film and the song? What did you learn about log rolling? I was so charmed. I mean, I think 
I would have said I sort of knew roughly speaking, you know, that it was about transporting logs by means of water and that the people who did it had to sort of rather nimbly, um, you know, hop from log to log in order to do it. And that I myself would not possibly be able to do it and have, having no coordination or balance. Um, but seeing the film of it just made you realise quite how nimble they are. It was amazing, wasn't it? Uh, really amazing. And then this, I loved the song was just, you know, I love folk music, but I wouldn't say that I knew very much about Canadian folk music, for example. Uh, and I found it absolutely delightful, didn't you? I've, it just, it was wonderful. So it's a, it's a very beautiful, merry song about a, a, the girl saying that the, it's called the Log Drivers Waltz. And the girls saying that the log drivers, which is what they're called, the, the guys who are skipping about on the logs, they're the best at dancing because they're so nimble and fleet-footed. And it's got quite a few verses. And she she goes through and says, um, well, because of my parents, I have to dance. When we have a dance, I have to dance with the merchants and the doctors and the lawyers. And they've got good manners, but they can't dance. None of them is as good as the log driver. And then at the end, she, she, she ends up with the log driver. I, what I love is the final line of each chorus. The log driver's waltz pleases girls completely. It's just so, such a brilliant sign-off. Well, it, it's very, I mean, let's be truthful and let's allow the listeners to kind of weigh on in, in on this. I just heard that as a complete double entendre, I must say. Uh, but <laughs> I didn't until you pointed it out. But now <laughs> I think I think there's a sort of little bit of twinkly gleeful naughtiness in that refrain a log driver pleases girls completely uh, and there's a sort of bounce of it that suggests you know that their their sort of um well their nimbleness their dexterity their fleet-footedness might have many applications not simply those on the on the sort of social uh center dance floor right okay well that's very relatively delicately put alex thank you <laughs> I'm the log driver of, of, of euphemism. Let's just put it like that. <laughs> it's a beautiful film um, and, and a lovely song. And, it's, and it, it is itself a waltz, quite right. It's in, it's in three, so it's a lovely, if you want to, I, I would very much recommend going to the film. So you, you go to the um, National Film Board of Canada uh, and then you just have to put in log driver's waltz, but we'll put a link to it up on our page. Um, I highly recommend everyone to go and spend four or five minutes learning about um, learning about log rolling and um, jumping around to the log driver's waltz. It's so much more wholesome, isn't it, than the log rolling you were talking about last week? <laughs> it really is. It's just much nicer, much nicer. Well, it was wholesome until you got your hands on it. I thought it was terribly wholesome. Sorry, that, that, it was ever thus. <laughs> Um, But now we're going to turn to you, Alex, because you're going to talk us through how to be our best selves. Is that right? I mean, I know, of course, that you, Lucy, and again, our our esteemed listeners probably are very close to being their best selves. But yes, I am. The art of helping yourself. It often feels like you could spend your days reading self-improvement tomes. Indeed, it's a genre so chock full, you'd barely have time to read anything else. Although there's probably a book telling you how to find more time to read. But there's more to self-help than at first meets the eye. At least that's the premise of The Art of Self-Improvement by cultural historian Anna Katharina Schaffner. Catherine Hughes has reviewed it for this week's paper. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Alex. What a fun thing to write about. Um, Just tell us first, this is a book that goes way beyond the sort of who moved my cheese and how to get rich quick books, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Um, Schaffner makes this really important distinction between self-help books like Who Moved My Cheese and self-improvement, which is something much more sort of, well, to use the word mindful, which is the buzzword at the moment, but something that's just much richer and much, and much deeper. And, and what she does very cleverly, I think, is make us see the difference between those two things. So self-help might be all about how to get ahead at the office, um, but self-improvement actually might just be about how to be a better colleague, friend, employee or boss. So it's it's much richer, it's much fuller and... Um, the the rewards i think are, are kind of spread much further they go right into society at large so the kind of idea of of self help is sort of goal orientated i suppose it's how to get something basically self improvement is your is i suppose another buzzword is a kind of holistic approach to the self and to society i think you can even go deeper with it i mean self help uh, presupposes that you're quite happy with the way the world works and all its late capitalist rottenness. You're not trying to change any of that, the unfairness, the uh, the awful, blatant sort of misery of it all. You're just going to carve out a nicer path for yourself. Mm. Self-improvement, uh, she she thinks, is, is actually about, you know, you might decide that you actually want to change the world. But in order to do that, you've got to change yourself first. So there's, there's more of a promise of action if that's what you want to do. But I think she's very good. I mean, she's she's very good at making that point that you know, self-improvement can fall into a sort of uh, awful, cloying sort of self-esteem talk, which ends up as narcissism, where basically you become the subject and the object of everything in the world. At the other end, if you become very stoical, if it's all about let me just put up with everything in the world, that can be also a very um, sort of determinist, deflating kind of position. So she wants us to to, to make or, or to think about finding a way between those two poles so that we don't assume that, yeah, that the world can be remade in our image, but nor do we think, heavens, it's all helpless. I better just go away and, and die in my hole. let's let's not think that shall we that is a route to just you know endless netflix and crying isn't it exactly yeah it's an interesting sort of journey to chart between them it's much deeper than you might originally think from from who moved my cheese i could never work out how working out who moved your cheese would help your life i think the point is actually lucy it it wouldn't it came in for an awful lot of flack in america um that great historian of ideas barbara erich neatly said you know who moved my cheese is simply uh, a sort of bible for people who are about to be made redundant it's sort of telling them how, <laughs> how not to be too upset about it I mean it was it wasn't going to help you at all it was going to help uh the people who are in charge of the cheese mm. um but where I think this this is a serious important book I mean Anna Katerina Schaffner is a uh, professor of cultural history at Kent what she's very interested in doing is taking what might seem like slightly facile titles that we're we're all aware of, like Awaken the Giant Within and even Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, these slightly slogany kind of books that we've heard of, even if we haven't read them. And she wants to trace them back to their origins, where they have a much sort of richer starting point, often in classic Stoic thought of the first century AD or back to uh, the Renaissance, back to Montaigne and the Renaissance. So her point is they may seem a little bit um, glib, they've been packaged, but if you actually think about them 
understand where they come from and perhaps trace them back to their origins, it starts to make a slightly richer, deeper sort of sense. Uh, I, I must say, when you when you said, even if we haven't read them, I am actually a person who has read quite a lot of them. I'm a real sucker for this sort of publishing. And I did wonder, and, and you you go into it, and I, I, I think probably Anna-Katharina Schaffner goes into it in much more depth, how they began to emerge in this kind of common incarnation. I mean, we know about, for example, Dale Carnegie and How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's right back in the 30s. But what was the point at which they became something that the modern reader began to buy in droves. I think it's a movement that walks hand in hand with uh, great improvements in the publishing industry. So from about 1850, where we get new ways of publishing, new ways of making paper, we've suddenly got a sort of mass readership of newly literate populations in Western Europe and America. That's when you start to see these books being pumped out. Interesting, 1859 is a really interesting year. Samuel Smiles in 1859 published Self-Help. And actually, that was the same year that Isabella Beeson came out with her book of household management. Both those books are absolutely designed for a mass readership. They're designed to both go far and wide. You can get hold of them cheaply. Um, the idea is that now it's a sort of democratised kind of uh, experience, both reading about these uh, these things that you could do and then putting them into practice. So I would say that's when it really starts to seem like self-help has kind of saturated the culture. It's really interesting, though, how those books continue to get misread. I mean, I remember back in the day when uh, Sir Keith Joseph was the educational secretary uh, under Mrs. Thatcher. He was so enamoured of Samuel Helps, uh, Samuel Smiles' self-help that he wanted a copy distributed to every child in Britain, which kind of boggles your mind because in in self-help, it's, it's all about get up at four o'clock, Learn some Latin before you go for your factory shift. Um, if you happen to get a bit, I don't know, let's say you have to get lame, just get your leg amputated in the lunch hour. Don't take any time off. And then you can hobble back to work and continue your way up the managerial tree. Now, how Keith Joseph thought this was going to help um, state school children in the 1980s, I have no idea. But it is interesting that it's an idea, just the word self-help, Victorian values still has a kind of odd creaky currency today. The getting up at four o'clock has kind of cycled back round, hasn't it? Because now we're all supposed to get up at four o'clock and not necessarily learn Latin, but go to the gym for two hours or whatever. That's 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 still a thing. I thought it, I think it's really interesting, Lucy, how during um, COVID, especially the sort of the first lockdown a, a year ago, lots of people looked seem to kind of look upon that that time of enforced rest, not as a, just a time to kind of chill out, but actually to put new behaviours in place. Uh, so exactly getting up early, doing lots of uh, gym work, making your own bread, being the person you always wanted to be. I think Samuel Smiles would be very, very um, approving of that. The trouble is it didn't really last. So we we went from making our own bread to getting, uh, getting pissed in front of, front of Netflix quite quickly. But it's... it's Which is its own form of self-help, of course. Yeah, yeah of course it is. <laughs> I would say there are some very educational documentaries on Netflix. Uh, admittedly, they might not be what we're watching. But uh, <laughs> interestingly, you know, that, that mention of Keith Joseph there and Samuel Smiles, it, it points to a kind of 
um, evasion of the state in some ways, doesn't it? That if we're all trying to improve ourselves and be self-reliant, we're not going to look to the state to do it for us. And I wondered how much a lot of these books address a kind of authority gap where we might have at once, one place looked for guidance in our lives to to religious organisations, to the government. And now we have kind of somehow... I don't know, taken in this idea that we've got to do it all ourselves. I think you're absolutely right. I think the reason Keith Joseph so likes Samuel Smiles is that really it's a doctrine of of small government. It's a doctrine where you are responsible for yourself. You must do everything. It's nobody's uh, job to help you or to encourage you to think in a certain way. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's no coincidence that these uh, these kinds of cheap books that I was talking about, self-help and the book of household management, become very popular just at the point where there's a sort of crisis in faith, where fewer and fewer people are going to church because they embody a kind of low evangelical Protestant kind of rigour and downness, and mm. you must rely on your own conscience to tell you what is right and what is wrong. Interestingly, neither Smiles nor Beaton were church people at all, but that didn't stop them borrowing that kind of language that is is what the vicar used to tell you. Now there is no vicar. Uh, You've got to look to yourself. So I I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is where Schaffner is is rightly quite sceptical about a lot of these books. Um, She feels that they are, um, well, who moved my cheese? As I say, it's not about actually deciding whether we need cheese in the first place or whether everybody needs a bit more cheese. It's actually just about making sure that you get some and you don't get too upset if a big hand descends from the sky and and takes it away. Um, the problem is, of course, that if you go the other way, if you if you are believe yourself to be entirely formed and programmed by your particular set of Um, social circumstances or your embodied presence that leaves you very little wiggle room to do anything about it it then becomes a sort of quite defeatist if it's all a question of throwing up your hands and going well I can't change myself because um, there is no place for change I'm I am the way I am that also is is really quite um difficult and unpleasant and unpalatable I mean she makes a very good point if we really believed that then we would have the death penalty um back in Britain because if we didn't believe that people could improve themselves or do better or make something of themselves well we we just we just um judicially murder all uh, all people who are convicted of a capital offence and we don't do that mercifully that's because we do deep down believe that there is possibility of improvement and if not transcendence perhaps some sort of salvation it's very interesting that, as you say there, there is this idea of the connection that our improving ourselves will have with the rest of the, with people around us, that the impact we can make on society. I mean, Schaffner, and I, I think you, as you're writing about her, do say that self-help can be a collective enterprise. It can feed in to our civic duties and our political duties. I think that's right. She's got a very, very good section, very, I think, persuasive about those books which have the word, and I'm going to say a rude word, fuck it, somewhere in the title. So I don't know if you, coyly, they always use asterisks, but um, John Parkin wrote one in 2007, fuck it, the ultimate spiritual way. Then Sarah Knight's had one, the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck. I have to admit, I did read that one. And then there was a more recent one, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And 
where she takes issue with these is um, that these books posit themselves as uh, a way of giving up and surrendering in a sort of Buddhist or Taoist way, in the sense of just giving up your inland empire and just going with the flow, and that that's a profoundly spiritual thing and will help everybody else around you. She makes a very good point. That is not what the Buddha was talking about. That is not what Taoist Taoism is about. Letting go in its original context isn't about just acting out your own stroppy desires. It's about letting go of worldly attachments and and the ego so that you are more able really to serve the people around you. And I, I think that's a really, really interesting distinction she makes. The point about letting go should be that we have more energy um, and it becomes available to cure, to care and attend to others. Uh, and the way the fuck it books describe it, it just sounds like a load of teenagers kind of going up to their bedroom and locking the door. It's a distinction, isn't it? It's not to say, uh, oh, I don't care about anything. Who cares? Mm. It's um, actually, I'm going to care less about the stuff that I particularly want and, and see what I can do outwards. It's a bit more that kind of thing. Is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's about um, sort of calming the inner voice, uh, not just so you'll feel a bit better and sleep mm-hmm. right through the night, but because you'll just have you'll have more attention and energy to give to the world and to other people. It's interesting, isn't it, the way that a lot of these things have spilled out into the culture generally. So we have, I mean, it's always something or other month, giving up something month, do you know, writing so so many words in a day, not drinking for January. There's this idea that this constant sort of work on the self uh, is kind of in every part of our lives, isn't it? Yes, uh, it, it absolutely is. And I, and I think that possibly comes back to that sort of mid 19th century feeling of, you know, your conscience is now your God. Uh, nobody's going to make you do anything. So it is up to you entirely to police yourself. And that's incredibly exhausting. I mean, that's just incredibly, um, well, just exhausting and impossible. And of course, we know, don't we? Because we keep on buying and reading these books. I'm a great one for downloading apps that tell me about all these sorts of things. We know that in a sense, it doesn't work. Otherwise, we wouldn't be constantly renewing our engagement with all this material. So Ah, in a way, it's getting us all frothed up into a very sort of torturous inner state where, again, we are entirely self-obsessed. I, I do want to, if we may, pause for a little while on the subject of Marie Kondo, who Shasna talks about, and so do you. And, um, you know, as, as with many of the kind of books that we've discussed, they are sort of ripe for, for mockery, uh, even if of a gentle kind. Um But she makes the point that actually Kondo is doing something valuable with the kind of spark joy idea, even if it has been sort of reduced into a slogan. That's right. Uh, The the great thing about this book, which I really enjoyed, is that Schaffner never goes for the easy joke. She never goes for the smirk. And as you say, poor old Marie Kondo, or perhaps quite possibly poor rich. Mm, I think she's very, very wealthy. She would be so easy to mock. But Schaffner says no let's not do that um and she makes a very good point i mean condo doesn't speak english so the fact that her message has gone right around the world in translation tells you something about its potency it it just does 
Uh, she also links it back to particular. This is where she's very good at finding genealogies for things. So she links it back to um, Shintoism uh, and also the concept of uh, wabi sabi, the impermanence of all things, which starts to make a kind of sense. And I, I guess is a sort of Japanese version of non, non attachment. Uh, Schaffner also uh, very uh, avidly, I think, for for a university professor makes it quite clear at the beginning of her book that she has read all these books she has done all these books she is trying to be you know five pounds lighter a better parent uh, all those things that we we need to be we want to be and we read these books so she she's absolutely clear that she finds something very cleansing about the condo uh idea uh that sense in which there is something quite dramatic about what it does by changing your environment you do in a sense clean up your interior life so that it's no longer full of very odd socks and um, you know socks with holes in well them. I have I mean I have noticed when I'm very sort of worried about something or preoccupied with something that I generally something I can't control the outcome of a good tidy goes very well and I I, I also kind of think the flip side of it I am possibly unhealthily attached to watching those kind of hoarding programs that they have on TV. And what is painful about them is always that the person who is doing the hoarding, there's always a trauma. There's always something horrible Mm. that they're compensating or avoiding. And it seems on that basis that something like, you know, cleansing your sock drawer, which sounds so trivial, is a kind of mindfulness to use another often devalued word, but it does, it just bring you into attention in your in your own life doesn't it I think that's right uh one thing so many of these philosophies have in common and and again Schaffner very very good at making connections across culture and across time is that sense of making space uh whether that's internal space or space in your sock drawer or a sort of philosophical pause where you can put distance between you and the immediate environment um so she talks a lot about the cbt cognitive behavioral therapy which of course is is um prescribed under the national health service uh now some people will be very very psychoanalysts will be very very sniffy about that will say it doesn't get to the root of anything but those who are are, are very keen on it and the many people are suggest that it just creates a space between the the thing that's hogging all your attention be it you know your 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 problematic child or your holy socks and your reaction so it builds in a sort of five second pause and that is incredibly helpful and I think that's what Schaffner seems to find in all of these uh very different philosophies I mean she's not suggesting that they can be collapsed into one master narrative or anything like that but what they all seem to do is make a little breach a little space in the way in which you consider the world I wonder, does she say anything, and I'm I'm assuming possibly not, about the kind of real sort of dilution, about the kind of endless, you know, internet hacks, the five ways to, you know, lose five pounds of belly fat or clean your fridge out or all that sort of thing? Because that's where I, I, I sometimes think, actually, despite the fact that these books seem to sell so, so well, are they at some point just going to all go into kind of five-minute podcasts or five-minute films on how to declutter? 
I think that may well happen, but I think to be fair, her book is a kind of resounding answer to that. So what she does is come at it the other way around. She in a way starts with the five ways to clean your fridge or, you know, 10 ways to be a better, better daughter. And she makes them richer and more complicated by tracing them back. So she's absolutely aware that that is the process. But what she seems to be saying in this book is, um, don't be put off by that. Don't 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 have that sneer that's so easy to, uh, to 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 feel when you when you encounter those sort of things. Think about them. Uh, untangle their richness and their history, and you will reach something much 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 deeper. And that's very positive in a way. I mean, obviously, I want to buy all the books that are under review in the TLS every week. But this is straight up to the top of my list. This just sounds fascinating. I think it's a brilliant example of of what um, an academic historian or academic philosopher can do. Um, It's published by Yale, Yale University Press, very, very kind of proper, rigorous publishing house. It would have gone out to peer review. It would have passed every single hurdle. But it reads so elegantly and so smoothly and it connects so deeply with things that one's thinking. This was a book where I absolutely was doing a lot of underlining and stamping on sticky notes all over the place. And I think it's just a really nice example of, of, of what can be done uh, when an academic who really has the information, the knowledge, and the kind of the capacity to think across time and space, what can be done uh, in the hands of a very skillful writer. And it's a lovely idea, the, the, the idea that what it, all of it is trying to do is just make a bit of space, whether that's physical or emotional yeah. or intellectual. And, and, and it's, it's, um, that's very helpful to be able to see that as a thread running through all of it, I think. Absolutely. Just in time for Christmas. And note to self, not to just, you know, buy every gaudy bauble going. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Catherine, I have to say you've you've really you've taken us really in depth into that piece. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm just assuming you're going to go off now and pick up all your belongings and see whether they spark joy or not. Exactly so, yes. (laughs) Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Alex and Lucy. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to margaret drabble and Catherine hughes thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by sophia franklin we'll be back next week but for now from alex clark and from me goodbye sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.